Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. For me, one of the most exciting phrases to hear in all of science is not an exuberant eureka, but the humble uncertainty of, hey, I had an idea. Hey, I had an idea is music to my ears because it's a phrase so full of possibility. It's like the feeling you get when the opening credits of a Star Trek episode fade to black and you're on the edge of your seat, waiting in anticipation for the start of the first act. So you can imagine how thrilled I was to open an email earlier this year from Professor Mohammed Noor that began with the words, I had an idea. For a general astrobiology-ish, review-ish, lots of ish kind of article, and wanted to run it by you. So basically, Professor Noor, the interim dean of arts and sciences and professor of biology at Duke University, wanted to get my feedback on an idea for a brand new scientific paper exploring whether the assumptions we make about evolution here on Earth would necessarily hold on alien worlds. Ha! Never could I have expected this! I mean, I had to pinch myself. One of the scientists that the Star Trek people turned to for science advice was turning to me for advice on science? <laughs> oh my god. This email elicited a warm and fuzzy feeling that even a mountain of tribbles couldn't match. But after that subsided, I put on my professional hat, Admiral Noor, Ensign Wong reporting for duty, and sent a reply with my thoughts. Many emails and months later, wouldn't you know it, a brand new paper appeared in the journal Evolution, Education, and Outreach titled Thinking Outside Earth's Box. How might heredity and evolution differ on other worlds? By one M.A.F. Noor. So today, we get to speak to Dr. Mohammed Noor, the author himself, about writing this intriguing paper, the intersections between his thought experiments and the aliens that we see on Star Trek, and, of course, the core principles of biological evolution. Engage. Professor Mohammed Noor, welcome back to Strange New Worlds. How's it going? Oh, it's great. It's a pleasure to be on Strange New Worlds. I'll see you out there. <laughs> <laughs> you know it. <laughs> I listen oh. to every episode excitedly. I love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm just so thrilled all the time whenever I get a chance to speak to you Ditto. on this podcast or in real life because you are such an awesome person and researcher, professor, dean, science communicator with your own YouTube channel. Oh, <laughs> and you're also a part of the Star Trek universe through your role as a science consultant. So just in case we have any listeners who are, you know, listening for the first time and they don't know who you are, could you tell those listeners a little bit about you and how you are actually a part of this golden era of Star Trek? So I should stress my part is very little, <laughs> but <laughs> I have for Discovery seasons three and four and for a little bit of Prodigy, which hasn't come out yet. 
Uh, I've been a contracted consultant for some episodes or some themes in the show. So what that means is that unlike Dr. Aaron McDonald, who is actually on staff as the science advisor for the Star Trek franchise, and she's an astrophysicist, if they need a little bit of expertise in biology, they're like, well, we'll, we'll reach out to somebody else. How about this Mohammed Noor guy? So <laughs> they tap me for things. And, and as we talked about in other episodes of your show, you know, I, I worked a little bit on the, the burn from season three and the, and the mode of communication via pheromones and hydrocarbons in season four. So those are, those are some of the things that have already come out. And today we're here to talk to you about a brand new paper of yours that is titled, yeah, super exciting. It's always great when like papers get published, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know, maybe maybe you're used to it now because you're a professor, but for me as an early career scientist, it's like, woohoo, I got another one. It's always exciting. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so uh, this t- this paper is titled Thinking Outside Earth's Box, How Might Heredity and Evolution Differ on Other Worlds? And I feel like that title is basically the definition of the perfect episode for this podcast. <laughs> but I'm willing to guess that it's actually not exactly the standard kind of research paper that you would publish. So how did the concept for this one come about? Sure thing. And actually, I should acknowledge you, <laughs> Dr. Mike Wong, who actually looked over a draft of this paper before I sent it <laughs> off and gave me some excellent feedback, both you know areas that were strong, areas that needed some editing. So thank you for your feedback on this as well. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> so this paper came about because of the confluence of two different things. On the one hand, again, as part of the consulting I've been doing for, for Star Trek, and I do a little bit of consulting for other things occasionally as well, um, the same kinds of questions come up all the time. Like, People often ask me, well, would natural selection still work in other species or how would genetics look in some other species? And I thought, you know, this is a fun moment, maybe write out some thoughts and use that as something that I can share with other people. So, you know, and also it's a good exercise for me to think through what, you know, what might those things be? It's a a great intellectual exercise, you know, what might be different, what might be similar. And the timing of this was really funny. And this this is the other, the confluence part. The timing of this was was fortuitous in that this is associated with the 200th anniversary of Gregor Mendel's birth. Gregor Mendel is the father of modern genetics. I know of these things called Mendel's laws. Um, Do you want to briefly describe what those are for those of us who took biology ages ago? (laughs) (laughs) Sure thing. So Mendel has a couple of laws. One of them is called the law of segregation, right? This is this idea basically that we get one copy of every gene from each parent. So we get two copies of every genes from our parents. And then one copy will go into the gametes and then go in, go to the next generation. So things will come together and then be separated again. This is the law of segregation. And it assumes that we have two copies of all, all our genes that we get one from each parent. So that's fair enough. And we can come back to you know whether that would apply to other species. Another law is the law of dominance. So for example, you probably heard the common thing that if you have a father with, with brown hair and a mother with blonde hair, it's more likely that the kid will actually have brown hair and that brown hair is dominant over blonde hair. That's actually an oversimplification. <laughs> but generally speaking, that means that if you if four single gene traits, if you get one copy from one parent and one copy from the other parent, and the one copy, let's say that these two copies manifest differently, one copy completely overpowers the other one. That one is called dominant. Now, that even among species on earth is not always true. I mean, there are times when you see intermediate cases where you have something that's truly the the mean of those two expected traits. But often you do see that, and Mendel saw that in the context of his piece. We should actually talk about Mendel's piece too. The last one is a little bit more complicated. It's Mendel's law of independent assortment. 
the idea from there is that, for example, let's say hypothetically, this is not true. Let's say that there's one hair color gene and one eye color gene. As these things are transmitted over generations and you get, you know, let's say, for example, the, from your dad, you get the grandmother's copy of the hair color gene. You won't necessarily get that the grandmother's copy of the eye color gene, too. So essentially, they, 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 they are sort independently over the course of generations. So you might get this one from this parent and then you might, it's, it might swap which grandparent you inherited from. Mendel studied these things in the context of these peas. So for example, he had some peas that were smooth and some peas that were wrinkled. And he'd, he'd take them and cross them together. If you cross smooth and wrinkled together, you would get all, I can't remember which one was dominant. Well, let's just say it was smooth. <laughs> all smooth peas. <laughs> and then if you cross those second generation of smooth peas together, you would get this three to one ratio. And it's because you're basically getting, you know, biggest, 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 uh, little less, biggest, little less, or little less, little less. There's multiple different possible combinations. For the one that's not dominant, you only get it if that's the only variant you inherit. So it's these are sort of start with visuals. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, that's why we have classrooms with like yeah. whiteboards and PowerPoint slides, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I guess this is a good summation of how life on Earth performs heredity and yeah. I guess passes along genetic information to be selected on by natural selection and drive evolution. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's the starting point. And to, to be clear for all three of those, there are exceptions, even among species here on earth. I mean, mm. there are cases of, for example, let's say, let's say asexual species. There is no segregation there that you might just get, you know, the, the exact same genetic copies that one parent had and that's it. You know, and, and I mentioned for dominance, not everything is dominant. And again, for independent assortment, there, there's if you have genes that are close together on a single chromosome, they would not assort independently. So there's, there's exceptions even here on Earth. So we call them laws, <laughs> but they're more like principles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like uh, today we're going to be tinkering around with all of these principles of life and trying to stretch them as far as we can go in our imaginations yeah. to try to come up with what alien life might be like. Yeah. Um, but I want to jump to a, a passage that you write at the beginning of your paper uh, where you talk about your motivation. So you yeah. say, quote, while I'm not an astrobiologist, yep. I have encountered questions repeatedly about genetics and evolution in life on other worlds outside of academic contexts via outreach talks and work with storytellers and filmmakers. So it sounds like you are referencing your job or your side job as a science consultant for Star Trek. Do you think being a science consultant for Star Trek had an influence on you in any way during this paper or the motivation Absolutely. to start writing it? Absolutely. No, I mean, there weren't specific plots, I would say, from Star Trek that, 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 were, that I was thinking about as I was writing this, but very much so in terms of the conversations I would have with people, both with that and again with other franchises as well. So that, that very much influenced me. Yeah, it's very astute. <laughs> I also want to read out another wonderful passage that just speaks to this essence of exploration that I think you tap into so brilliantly when you write, quote, if and when we finally encounter extraterrestrial life, we may have to view aspects of it with a perspective yeah. similar to the ones yeah. with which 19th century naturalists explored life on Earth. Scholars speculating with a nearly blank slate about the nature of inheritance and how evolution occurs. And I just love this thought because I feel like our heroes in Star Trek are basically those explorers that you're talking about encountering brand new life on strange yep. new worlds, gazing mm -hmm. wide-eyed upon that new life, mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Is there a particular instance of Star Trek that, you know, is just fresh in your mind that exemplifies the kind of naive exploration that you're oh. trying to describe here? I mean, the closest one just right off the top of my head uh, would be the Next Generation episode where they encounter the microbrain. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that. These are, this was this uh, microscopic silicon-based entities, and they weren't even convinced at first these things were alive. <laughs> so <laughs> this isn't about a genetic revolution. It was actually even just trying to figure out that these things were alive. It took a while to figure out, and then once they were alive, I mean, are they you know intelligent in what way? But yeah, I mean, that, that was a big debate through a lot of that episode until until they ended up in you know. Uh, zapping the guy who was being mean to them. <laughs> <Things like> <laughs> <that>. <laughs> I made it pretty clear that they were intelligent and, and alive. <laughs> yeah. I love those Star Trek episodes, like the microbrain one, where mm. the crew is just basically super confused by yeah. the life that they're encountering mm. on other worlds or just in the vacuum of space. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have to go, wait, what is that thing? Because it doesn't yeah. show up on our scanners as a biosignature. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Similarly, the silicon-based Horta, right, mm-hmm. was kind of like that. It didn't mm-hmm. show up. It didn't register because it was materially very different from life as we know it here on Earth. Absolutely. I think your essay is very much about things that are not just materially different, perhaps, but also like inactivity a little bit different from life as we know it, right? And that's really, really cool too. And it's getting into a brand new possibility space. Yeah, one thing I didn't go into in this essay at all was the things about like the material basis for life. Like would life that is extraterrestrial, for example, be DNA based if it was completely unrelated? I didn't touch that in this particular essay. I talked about that a little bit in the book that I have, not, not so much in this in this essay. Yeah, or you know, carbon versus silicon based. It was more just the, like looking at Mendel's laws, Darwin's principles. I mean, those were the things I was trying to focus on just as as specific historical milestones as opposed to like carbon-based life. That's like that's all we've ever known. So right. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of room to play, even if you just assume all life in the universe is carbon-based. Totally, totally. So I actually know some astrobiologists who would be so bold to say that we won't even know what life truly is until we discover separate instances of it elsewhere. That's a fair point, because I mean, we think about it like everything is based on one origin of life. Everything that we see is based on a single origin. So we then define life based on this. Imagine, you know, imagine like you define, you know, plants, you know, mm-hmm. by just one plant, you know, like you would be like, oh, <laughs> if it was an oak tree, you'd be like, oh, plants have bark. Well, okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> or plants are gigantic. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird that we do that, but yeah, I mean, it's true. Another example that I've read in this literature about the philosophy of life is like if you tried to define what a mammal was by looking Mm -hmm. at a zebra, which is a mammal, but it's just one example of a mammal. And you'd probably, you know, look at its stripes and think, oh, yeah, all mammals are striped and Mm -hmm. not at all care about its mammary glands because only half of zebras have mammary glands. But that's actually (laughs) the defining characteristic of a a mammal. (laughs) That's a great point. I like that one. (laughs) Yeah. So to me, your paper is just so brilliant because it's all about questioning our assumptions about heredity and evolution and questioning assumptions in all of science is is really important, but especially Mm -hmm. in astrobiology, because it makes us stop and think about those, you know, features of life that may be accidental features of life on Earth and fundamental features, too. Let me interrupt for one second. I liked it also as an exercise to talk about the 
basically introduce some of these concepts too in terms of exceptions that we know of even among life. So I, I like it in the context of intellectual exercises, just basic principles, but I also like it just as, because we tend to think of all these things as, oh, everything does X. I'm like, eh, not everything does X. So if, for example, law of segregation, there's an assumption that half your gametes will get the maternal and half your gametes will get the paternal forms. But there is this process called meiotic drive. And we know in many cases of it where, you know, you may have one of each, but you almost all your gametes get just one of them. You know, and that, and that's cool. It's nice to know what some of the, the exceptional cases are to try to understand what the diversity of life is, even on our own planet, even before we consider what's out there as well. Sorry to interrupt you on that. Right. No, that's that's a great example of how there is already that kind of fuzziness to the laws of life here on Earth. Mm-hmm. So as an example of this kind of questioning of assumptions that you do, um, you write that we often assume that inheritance is from one or two parent progenitors from whom we inherit genetic material, but one could imagine having more than two genetic parents. And I think in Star Trek, it's known that Andorians have four sexes. I'm not sure if that's like canon or just like in the books or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's also um, difficult because you have to define what that actually means. And that's been mm-hmm. that's been funny. I, I remember that coming up at one point in time in Star Trek, but I don't think it's actually defined what that means. So there's a paper, for example, you can find from Nature, which is something like a bird that has four sexes. And it, it makes it sound like four birds get together in this weird you know, confirmation to make an offspring. That's not what it means at all. It means that there's specific forms that can only breed with other specific forms. So, oh. so it's a little bit like, okay, that's not actually what most people would think when you see that like sexy title, <laughs> but I, you can imagine, especially with uh, like bacteria, bacteria will like toss out bits of DNA and pull in bits of DNA from others. You know, a particular bacteria may have gotten like some parts of this genome from a whole bunch of different individuals. So. Right, right. So you you also consider a possible world in which genes are not passed along through some kind of direct line of descent, but mm-hmm. through something like the gene swapping that bacteria do. Yeah. So yeah, it's you're right on this pool. possible world. An immature individual might grab a good gene variant to immediately mm-hmm. improve themselves mm-hmm. from this large genetic pool for multiple parents. I, I mean, this is so fun to think about. Um, yeah. Lots of sci-fi ideas in this one, huh? <laughs> and it would work well too, because if you did that, then you could immediately, and let's say, for example, you grab a good gene variant, you then would produce potentially a lot more copies of yourself, assuming that you also can, like, say, propagate asexually in addition to this. If you did that, then that good gene variant would also become much more common very quickly, too. So making natural selection also operate despite this weird mode of inheritance. So I guess I want to ask if, you know, if this is such a prevalent aspect of the way that bacteria trade genetic material and evolve, uh, why is it that we do this weird thing called sex? <laughs> why do we do this bacterial <laughs> conjugation too? Yeah, I should know the answer. To that. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's, there's, there's a lot of theories on why sex. I mean, a, a big part of why people say there's a lot of sex. Now, it's not compared to, say, bacteria, but let's say, for example, compared to, say, an asexual lizard. One of the big things is this opportunity for producing new combinations. If we're entirely asexual, right, you're just producing a clone of yourself all the time, right? And if you're producing clones of yourself all the time, then that's not necessarily advantageous, right? Because let's say the environment changes in some way. Well, that's the type that's out there. Also, we, we tend to accumulate 
bad mutations. And there's no way to get rid of bad mutations unless you shuffle combinations around. So it's both an opportunity to bring together good variants or, or opportunistically good variants, but also a chance to get rid of bad variants by having sex. And again, it doesn't happen in one generation, but it's over a couple of generations. You can have that happen pretty well. Okay, so I guess sexual reproduction, can I think of it then as a way of speeding up the process of generating new variants? Is that just new combinations? New combinations. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, basically, this... sex and recombination are very intrinsically tied, or people assume that. For, for those of us who uh, aren't in the biolingo, what is the difference between sex and recombination? Ah, so so sex is basically the the process that does. So recombination is literally like if you imagine, um, let's say there's capital letter variants and lower lowercase letter variants of particular genes. And let's say for example, my gene variants, I have big A, I get a big A, big B from my mom, and I get a little A, little B from my dad. So I have you know one of each. What I might pass on to my kid might be a big A, big B like I got from my mom, or might be a little A, little B like I got from my dad. But I also could put, pass on a big A, little B which that would be a new combination. So hence a recombination event has happened. So I'm passing on a combination of these factors that did not exist in the previous generation. Oh, wow. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for explaining that to me. No problem. <laughs> Again, it's always better with a, with a diagram, but I'm trying to lay it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back to this imaginary world where maybe there is some kind of macroscopic multicellular life that does do this kind of gene swapping. I can imagine all sorts of interesting societies um, yeah. emerge from that kind oh, yeah. of reproduction. I, I feel like if you were an individual in that kind of society, you might toss in new genetic material the way that we decide what clothes to wear in the morning. Yeah, well, the, so that's thinking of it as very um, conscious. Right, which mm. is possible. I mean, that, that's a possibility. But the easier version of it, where you was totally unconscious. I mean, like with bacteria, they don't actually like reach out and pick something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just something comes floating by. They absorb it in, and it and it works great or it doesn't work great for them. <laughs> so that's kind of uh, it's just up to fate then for that bacterium. Yeah. They don't do any screening for any any kind of like this is going to be a good one. Pick it up. This mm -hmm. is going to be a bad one. Don't. Mm -hmm. But what would happen though is is good ones will cause more reproduction to happen. So good ones mm -hmm. end up becoming more common in the pool overall yeah. natural selection man oh. <laughs> that's the way it works that's the way it works <laughs> yeah i remember a microbiologist telling me at a conference once that um i'm gonna butcher the quote i'm pretty sure but it's like <laughs> um the microbes themselves move around but the genes stay put in that oh the, interesting the, the genes are like a biological entity to themselves. If you just oh. look at the distribution of genes, yeah. there are certain genes that are very well adapted to an environment. And mm -hmm. if you, for some reason, had an influx of new bacteria and an outflux of the old mm -hmm. ones, the new ones will just take up the genes that mm -hmm. are good for that environment, use them to propagate while they're in that mm -hmm. environment, and then mm -hmm. drop them off and, and leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but again, it's not determined. It's not uh, like they don't know. I mean, they, they, can't, yeah. they don't think, right? They can't consciously grab something. But yeah, no, I, right. I, I, like, that, I like that analogy. Yeah, I think this is a really good distinction that each individual bacterium doesn't think about it. Yeah. It's just the result of natural selection happening at this population scale that causes those genes to be prevalent in that environment and not prevalent in others. 
Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's funny how much we, we tend to think of everything as being very conscious. I always talk about this with my kids too, like when we're out for a walk or something, because they'll say, why did that fly fly in my face? It's like, it, it, it didn't think to fly. It's just stimulus response. You know, <laughs> it's got a little computer program in its head that basically does this thing. And overall, that computer program has worked well over the generations. And that's why there's so many flies out there that have it. So a great example of this is moths around a, um, uh, around a light, right? They come and they're sort of circling around the light. You know why they do that? The reason they do that is they're basically trying to navigate by where the moon is and they get confused by the light. So they come and they're trying to keep it at a particular angle so they can go the same way. But then when they come to the light, they then end up doing this angle around and it ends up becoming a circular motion around the light. But again, wow. it's a computer program gone wrong. <laughs> ah, well, that's a, that brings up that quote from Jean-Luc Picard when he's defending data's rights, uh, where he says, we're just machines too. Just we're, we're, we we're machines too. Just we a different are. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. And, and the mods with the lights reminds me of that Star Trek Strange New Worlds episode that I actually just rewatched yesterday. Um, matter of fact, where uh, the crew gets infected by some kind of virus or pathogen from a planet that causes them to want to bathe in lights so they're oh, yeah, like yeah, constantly yeah, yeah. seeking yeah, yeah. out the lights in their yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, rooms and the reason why is because the pathogen is transmitted via light rays <laughs> that doesn't yeah, make sense that to me, but assuming, <laughs> <laughs> assuming that, that is possible <laughs> I guess it totally makes sense that they would try to make them yeah. go towards that light. Yeah. I just don't understand how the, the I mean, light is energy, but <laughs> I'm not sure how that part of works, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, there we go. It's, a, it's very, I mean, I'll give it a it's creative science fiction. I love that. <laughs> I love that facet to it. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, the point is well taken. The, the, so you, you probably heard of like the ants that get the, the fungus that takes over their brain and makes them climb up to the tops of branches and stuff. Again, it's not, the fungus is not controlled to do this but those fungi which did that reproduced more <laughs> right right and so those those imaginary pathogens that you know need yeah. to be transmitted by light which are able to affect humanoids in a way that makes them run towards light will get propagated more exactly exactly yeah. kind of like the the various covid variants that are better at oh evading goodness. our immune response <laughs> yes oh <laughs> Okay, getting back to evolution. So yeah, yeah. it's all evolution. <laughs> all everything we're talking about is natural selection. That's true. What I'm, <laughs> I guess, what I should say is, getting back to your paper, <laughs> mm -hmm, um, I know that a long time ago in the history of science, there was a debate about whether life on Earth evolved through Lamarckian evolution yeah. or Darwinian evolution. And mm -hmm. today we know that Darwin's ideas won, and 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 yet that paradigm you write in your paper is somewhat getting complicated by this thing called transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. That's correct. Can you walk us through what that is and how that leads us to this idea that some parts of life may be evolving in a Lamarckian sense here on Earth? Yeah. So to be clear, these are fringe cases. These are, this is not. It's not like Lamarck was right or anything, anything extreme along those lines. So let me start with defining Lamarckian inheritance. So Lamarckian sure. inheritance is this idea that through activities that we conduct or their experiences that we have, something has changed in us. And that change is then transmitted directly into the offspring, not because we survive better, but like directly. So, you know, I think one of the old analogies people used to say is if you're a blacksmith and you get, get big muscles in your biceps, then your kid will be born with slightly bigger muscles. Like, okay. That would be, that would be Lamarckian inheritance. That doesn't happen. Like you, you can work out as much as you want. Your kid's going to be just whatever your kid is. It has nothing <laughs> to do with how much you work out. <laughs> but 
there are a few small exceptions every now and then. And, and these are cases, you know, where, for example, I think one of the, one of the ones that's been studied, this is, I think this one isn't like 100% solid, but it looks, it looks pretty compelling. Depending on the diet that some male, I can't remember if it's mice or rats, but I'll just say mice. <laughs> Depending on the diet some male mice are fed, that you can actually have daughters that exhibit diabetes-like symptoms sometimes. And it's thought that there may be some sort of epigenetic marks on the gene. So no, again, we pass on, I as a father passed on my, you know, one copy of all my genes to my son and one copy of all my genes to my daughter, right? But imagine that, that there's not a change in letters of the DNA, but maybe there's like some molecule that gets tied to the DNA and is still tied on when it goes into my sperm that makes it so a particular gene does not turn on as high as it could. That would be a means of epigenetic or transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. Transgenerational in that like it's, it's going from me to my kid. Epigenetic in that, again, it's not changing the letters of the DNA, but might affect how much particular genes are turned on or off. And there's a few, like I said, there's a few fringe cases of that. And I mean, it's not so common. In, I think it's more common in plants, but it's not so common in, in mammals or things like that. Interesting. So that, that's kind of Lamarckian, right? Because it's inheritance of an acquired character, right? Now, the, the stability of these things is kind of dodgy, right? Like, okay, that works from me to my daughter. It would still inherit from my daughter on to, you know, her son. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Most of those epigenetic marks, these molecules that tie on DNA that, that affect how much they're turned off, most of those are, are wiped out during germline formation, during the formation of sperm or eggs. So that, that's why it's not so common. So given what you've just told us about these fringe cases here on mm -hmm. Earth where this kind of transgenerational epigenetic inheritance is active, can we imagine a possible world out there where... Yeah. Lamarck was basically right about oh, yeah. the main way that life evolves? Absolutely. I mean, there's no reason not to. I mean, the thing is, if you don't have inheritance the same way we do in the context of DNA like that, maybe something happens where, actually, even a simple, a simplest case would be that these marks are not taken off. Then, yeah, absolutely, that would do it. But there's all sorts of other possibilities. There's all sorts of alternate forms of inheritance where maybe the, the letters are directly changed based on your experience or something about the, the motive. I'm saying the letters as though they're using DNA, but it might not even be DNA-based. But yeah, absolutely, you might see inheritance of acquired characters. We don't know. And this is, again, comes back to the point you raised in the very beginning about 19th century naturalists. They were having to figure this out. You know, We now say, well, we don't have to figure it out because it's been solved. So yeah, it's been solved for this life, but for life on IO, Maybe not. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> for example, I guess Renee Picard will have to tell us. <laughs> Renee Picard will have to tell us. <laughs> when it comes to Lamarckian inheritance, or just this idea of being able to pass on things that you have assimilated through your lifetime, I always come back to the Borg as this kind of example of, I, I, I guess they're not really a species, but whatever they are, they are able to take in new information that they've acquired during just experience with other cultures and other, you know, other spacefaring races, and then go and pass that along in the, whatever line of descent the collective has. Is this, is this a kind of Lamarckian inheritance too? It's, I mean, it's tricky with the Borg because the Borg don't, I mean, it's, it's never quite clear to me exactly what they reproduce as, because I mean, they have so many different species that are assimilated. You know, so let's say they have an Andorian and they have a, a you know, a Klingon and they have a human. And then let's say they're going to make a Borg baby. I don't know. Is the organic part going to be like Klingon or human or like, do they roll the dice? I don't know. What, I, don't know how they, I don't know how they decide what they're going to make. I mean, we've yeah. seen that there are Borg babies and they have these maturation chambers. We've seen that they right. do this, but 
it's really unclear what, <laughs> what the process is there. It's a, it's a weird, well, I hate to use the word, but like, it's a weird collective. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the different pieces there are, are funny. It's hard to know what to make of that. I mean, there are some weird protists where you have like different specialists that all come together to make one kind of organism. There's some things like that, but yeah, the Borg is just a weird... <laughs> It's hard to even define it by the terms that we have, which again, you know, leading back to the argument, there could be life like that where, you know, it's basically this conglomeration of other things you might otherwise call species, but sometimes they come together in weird ways. For me, I think I kind of view the thing that is being replicated in the board collective as whatever program you get when you become assimilated. And I feel like, so say if, you know, Mohammed, you get assimilated and then you learn how to adapt to like a Federation phaser and then you assimilate me, I will probably also acquire Oh, I see, that I see that adaptation. part of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's possible, <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, actually there, I guess you'd say there's vertical transmission too. And I'm sorry, uh, horizontal transmission too. And that things right. can immediately inherit, you know, without without having to go to another generation. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be mother offspring, right? It can be it can be horizontal. <laughs> right, right, right. Because I'm not your offspring, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, but I mean, the, <laughs> the, the, board, yeah, the board can conceivably, it's not like, because they shoot the one Borg and then the next Borg lives. But like the next Borg wasn't the kid of the first Borg got shot, right? Right, 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 right. exactly. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, it just gets transmitted through the hive mind how to yeah. put up a shield against this yeah. laser. Mm. But I mean, that gets that gets dodgy too, is how much is that is truly inherent and how much of that's just communication, <laughs> right? Huh. Yeah. So I, I mean, guess it is, some level of just communication. It's not, it's not clear how much that is like ingrained in the, like if they have a kid, is that still passed? Because if it's not passed on, then it really is just communication. But. Do you view there being a continuity then between inheritance and communication? Because I guess for, for us humans, we can communicate through generations by like speaking because we have mm -hmm. culture and we have language and we have brains with minds, but we also can, I guess, quote unquote, communicate ideas or strategies for surviving through our genes too. So is there is there like a fundamental difference between these two concepts or are they actually kind of the same as as in like um, the way that we transmit information through language to our descendants is maybe a quicker or more amplified way of being able to learn about in our environment and then transmit that through genes? That's a fascinating question. <laughs> that is a fascinating <laughs> I mean, both of them involve transmission, right? Yeah. So in that sense, there, there's overlap between the two. Both of them involve transmission. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. I, 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 could, I could draw a case where to, to, along the lines of what you're saying and say that maybe there's some, there's some gray area, <laughs> potentially. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I guess people talk about cell communication, but it's not, they're not usually talking about just complete transfer of the genome there. But yeah, I mean, there, there, could, be, there could be cases where the, the, it becomes a gray area. I could see it. That's a fascinating question. Very insightful. <laughs> <laughs> well, all thanks to our conversation about the Borg and what it actually means to yeah. transmit information from drone to drone. Yeah. Oh, man, I'm going to be thinking about that one for a while. <laughs> <laughs> so you also write in your paper that uh, one might imagine an extraterrestrial species wherein a complete genome is silenced upon inheritance, making all contributions from a particular parent effectively recessive, taken to the extreme in a hypothetical extraterrestrial species, whole genome copies are transmitted and may become manifest in a future generation, perhaps under specific 
conditions. I feel like there's another sci-fi story, right? Totally, there. totally, totally. And that's the kind of thing that people talk about all the time. Like, oh, they look just like their grandmother that must have been recessive. Like, yeah, it's probably just random. <laughs> but maybe in some of these other cases, it's not random. Maybe like this was like just held in kind of stasis in a way, <laughs> then mm-hmm. passed on and then turned on in a few in a future generation. Yeah, possible. Yeah, it's the great thing yeah. is speculating with these things. It's like, you know, the, the, there's the sky's the limit, right? <laughs> right. And then you also write that um, this concept called genetic drift is mm-hmm. possibly one of the most absolute yeah. out of all of the concepts that That's you true. examine in your paper. Absolute yeah. in the sense it's, it's probably just it's going to work everywhere or it's going to yeah. occur everywhere. So, yeah. Mohammed, what is genetic drift and sure. why is it so immutable? Yeah, so genetic drift is really a statistical artifact in a sense, right? That, you know, imagine imagine you have like a suite of M&Ms, right? And let's say <laughs> 60% are brown and 40% are green, right? And you grab a handful from them. That handful will be on average 60% brown, 40% green, but there'll be some variation around that. And the smaller the number of M&Ms you pick, the more the potential variation is from there. So let's say, for example, you picked only like, five M&Ms, you wouldn't necessarily get exactly three and two, right? You might get four and one or, you know, or one and four. It might, it might deviate quite a bit. That is essentially genetic drift. It's the same thing happening with gene variants. So in small populations, you can see larger shifts in the abundance of particular gene variants over time. And that, I mean, unless, so this comes back to you, the, the thing you, you brought down, unless somehow the, the, the frequency of particular gene variants is tied to the location or something like that, if you don't have that, then yeah, I mean, you'll have these stochastic changes every generation. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the more, the smaller the group, the more stochastic it'll be. And I also feel like this might apply to something like when a certain population of Vulcans left Vulcan and founded Romulus. Mm-hmm. Um, there was probably a little bit of genetic drift happening there, right? Could be, could be, and it could be like maybe the North versus South with the the smooth foreheads versus oh, the, the rumpy right. foreheads. It could just be that a small group moved over there, and it just happened to be that some of the small group had smoother foreheads when they moved, just by chance, and then that then ended up being more abundant in that particular location. It's quite yeah. possible, and we have that. I mean, we see that even with disease things. I mean, the um, the island of Mauritius, which is you know a fairly small island in the Indian Ocean, has a fairly high frequency of I think it's Huntington's disease. And it's because like it was founded by a small group of people and one of them happened to have it. <laughs> so if you look at the frequency there, it's much higher than most of the other areas around. Wow. Chance events. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Mohammed, is there a weird variation on life that we haven't yet seen on Star Trek that you would Ooh. love to see in the Star Trek universe? I mean, I mean, the, the obvious one is of course Silicon based, but that, that we've seen many times now. So that that's fine. I said, it's hard to know what we don't know, right? That's always the challenge, right? So, you know, I, I'm open. Basically, anything that looks crazy to me, I'm always excited to see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess that's why Star Trek is so wonderful because it'll throw us things that are completely different. Like you said, we've seen silicon-based life forms a lot, but I'm sure when they first appeared, people were like, whoa, that's a crazy concept. And then, you know, Species 10C was mm-hmm. very out there. And, you know, all of these unique forms of life that just materially, I feel like we've explored quite a bit of variety in Star Trek. I think they could do a little bit more in terms of this, like, functionality of life. Mm-hmm. How does something pass on its genes? Yeah, I did think of one. I did think of one. What I think would be really cool would be 
something and they, they have they've had a little bit of this in star trek but something where we play with this idea of time frame right mm. the, you know something like say for example a species that is alive but the metabolic processes and reproduction happen on the order of say like millennia yeah. where you're looking at it and it looks just like is dead or immobile or something like that that would be really interesting and then but somehow they figure out like oh it's actually metabolizing or reproducing or whatever but it doesn't happen except you know every couple of thousand years so it's completely just running on this entirely different time scale from what we see we've seen the extreme the other case of that say with the original series these these uh, people who are sped up and they're going so fast we can't see them and things like that but i would love to see the way extreme the other way where they're just confused and they can't tell that would be fascinating Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can imagine something really cool having to do with, you know, maybe we're messing up their environment, or maybe we're even hurting that life form. Mm -hmm. And we don't realize it because we don't know that it's alive. Yep, exactly. And, and I don't want to like stress this too much, but I almost feel like that's kind of what we do on Earth already to like, the ecosystem like I'm, yeah. not, I'm not i'm not trying to say that earth is an organism and that earth is alive but like mm -hmm. when we are doing things like uh yeah. perturbing the climate yep. uh and and changing our atmosphere mm -hmm. uh we don't think of that as you know necessarily like a system that needs respect because maybe it just changes on time scales that we don't understand or that we don't yeah. experience or we think our, our great great grandchildren are going to deal with it and we'll yeah. be long gone yeah um, no exactly it's easier to deny when it's slow <laughs> it's easier to deny your impact it's like yeah maybe that would have happened anyway like yeah maybe but you, you still clearly contributed to it <laughs> yeah 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 well, that's fascinating. I, yeah. I hope you get a chance and, you know, knowing you, you will <laughs> to uh, help inject a little bit of that um, kind of cool new time different alien in Star Trek. Oh, I would love that. I would be so excited to work with them on that. Yeah, <laughs> We'll see. Maybe someday. <laughs> so I feel like today we've twisted and broken a ton of biological principles in a good way that yeah. we've stretched our imaginations and given ourselves an open-minded outlook for searching for new life in the universe to end the scientific part of this discussion. I just want to ask, do you think there are such things as biological laws, actual strict rules that biology everywhere in the universe on earth, on Titan, on Vulcan, maybe even, you know, the Borg, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. these principles that life everywhere must follow. I mean, it's hard to avoid. So you mentioned genetic drift already as, as one kind of absolute, but it's not really a biological principle. I mean, it kind of is, but it kind of barely is too. Natural selection is a hard one to avoid because again, if you have the three things, if you have the three conditions for it satisfied, which are you know variation that is heritable and affects survival or reproduction, right? So as long as you have you know, variation, heredity, survival, reproduction affected by it, you'll always get natural selection. You can potentially affect how strong it is. You can affect, you know, the nature of it. You can do a whole bunch of things like that. But ultimately, like natural selection will happen. It is a mathematical inevitability, you know, with those <laughs> conditions met. So I have fond memories of hearing you say natural selection is a mathematical inevitability during oh, your yeah. talks. Um, I do. I do say that one a lot. I love that. I love natural selection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And for those of you listeners who haven't yet seen one of Muhammad's talks at a Star Trek convention, you've got to go and hear that line for yourself live. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to make a pitch for your talks, Mike, because I, oh. I saw your talk at Mission Chicago. Oh my gosh. That was <laughs> phenomenal. That was the that was one of the best talks I saw at the, the whole, at any convention, honestly. Oh man, that <laughs> so means so much. You. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
So Muhammad, do you have any upcoming projects that you want to plug? Um, and also where can people follow you on the internet? Sure. Uh, I'll answer the second one first. I, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Mafnur, M like Michael, A, F like Frank, N like November, O-O-R, or on YouTube as Biotrekkie, B-I-O-T-R-E-K-K-I-E. I actually have my, my YouTube series kind of on pause right now while, while I'm doing this interim dean job because it's incredibly demanding, but I hope to get back to it after, after this is done. Um, I've got my projects. I mean, the only, the only uh, thing I know of that's coming up that I'm going to be doing is the Star Trek cruise at the end of February, uh, 2023. So I'm excited to give a couple of talks there. I'm not sure exactly what they'll be yet, but <laughs> I'm excited <laughs> to do it and see whoever's going to be there for it. That's awesome. Yeah. I've always wanted to go on one of those cruises. So have fun. I can't wait to see the pictures. You should come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess one last thing is sure. that, um, and I don't know how relevant this will be for most of our listeners, but I'm in the process of preparing some applications for faculty jobs. And mm -hmm. as a professor at a very prestigious university, I wondered, do you have any general tips for faculty applications since- Oh, um, for applications. So I have a, I have a whole book, not, not for applications, but I'm really? starting a new faculty position. It's called, <laughs> You're Hired, Now What? A Guide for New Science Faculty. No way. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's, it's from about 10 years ago. So <laughs> I wrote okay. a whole book on that. I think it's Oxford University Press. I think that's where it is now. <laughs> okay. But yeah, that's for actually starting the job. For applications, I, I, oh, actually, I do have one tip. This is something that somebody told me, and I think it's a great idea. When you get recommendation letters, don't just do your, your PhD advisor, your postdoc advisor, and committee member. That's usually what people tend to do. Get one letter who's somebody with whom you've never collaborated, but who is an expert in the field and a well-known expert in the field. And that is kind of like what faculty get when they're up for tenure. They get these tenure letters. Getting one of those when you're applying for a job application uh, shows... Basically, you've made a name for yourself and you're well known. I love that advice. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, I've never considered that because I figured that if I've never worked with a person, they would never, they wouldn't know what to write about me. But, but that's true for any tenure letter. I mean, we write tenure letters all the time for people. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you basically send them your materials and say, would you be willing to do this? It, it, it can be somebody you've met. It doesn't have to be somebody you've never met. But, you know, especially if it's somebody who came up to you at the end of a conference and said, wow, that was really great. I love your work. That's the person. <laughs> wow, my mind is spinning now. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me on Strange New Worlds once again, Mohammed. It's always, always so a fun. Pleasure. Always a pleasure. <laughs> now that Mohammed has widened our minds and has given us a theoretical buffet of different kinds of heredity and evolution that could exist on other planets. One of the most fascinating things to think about, in my opinion, is the connection between those different modes of being and their environmental context. After all, the style of evolution that we have here on Earth is the one that we have because it works here. So what kinds of environments would incentivize life to prefer Lamarckian inheritance or having more than two genetic parents, or whole genome silencing. I have a suggestion for one, just off the top of my head. Consider a planet with a highly elliptical orbit, meaning that it spends some of its year very close to its host star, and a lot of the year much farther away. Now imagine a species whose generations are a lot shorter than a full orbital period of that planet. So basically alien mayflies or something that live and die on a timescale 
that is a small fraction of that planet's orbit around its sun. Those aliens might pass along genes related to heat tolerance to their progeny silently for generation after generation. Those heat-tolerant genes would only get triggered and expressed in the generation that needs it, the generation that coincides with the planet's closest approach to the star. Now, on Earth, with our nearly circular orbit, this kind of thing would never occur. Or it might occur, but it wouldn't be advantageous to do it. So, as the title of Mohammed's paper suggests, we have to think outside Earth's box. And that's the job of astrobiologists, but it's also the job of science fiction writers, of the creators of the Star Trek universe. Astrobiologist David Grinspoon wrote in his 2016 book Earth in Human Hands, quote, when it comes to the paths that evolution may take elsewhere, science fiction writers have done a better job than scientists of exploring the wide landscape of possibilities. They have the advantage of not having to undergo peer review, and they are paid to push the envelope, while the rest of us furiously scribble equations on the back of it." End quote. I truly believe that Mohammed Noor embodies the best of both worlds. He's a rigorous scientist whose paper that we discussed today did have to go through peer review, by the way. But at the same time, he's an open-minded dreamer whose imagination goes into envisioning those wonderful aliens that we get to see on Star Trek. Don't forget that you can follow me on Twitter at MikeY, that's M-I-Q-U-A-I, and, of course, this show is on Twitter as well, at Science of Trek. One last note on podcast programming before we depart today. You may have noticed that my output rate of episodes has slowed a bit in recent weeks. That is likely to continue for the rest of 2022. I've just got a lot of things to juggle at work right now, including those pesky faculty applications that Mohammed and I spoke about at the end of our interview. So I just wanted to extend a big thank you as always for listening to Strange New Worlds and for sharing it with your friends and fellow Trekkies. And thank you especially during this time for your patience and support as I craft my applications and work on some really cool science that I hope to share with you on a future episode of Strange New Worlds. Until next time. Oh, wait, do I get to say the line? Oh, go for it, sure. please. And I'll see you out there. <laughs> <laughs>
you didn't like, so the typical peer review is all like change this change that this is bad this is bad but you were like yeah. i really like this paragraph i found it really exciting like oh it's so like, <laughs> it's so encouraging i love it yeah i mean first of all i wasn't the peer reviewer so i felt like I don't, you know, have to be mean or anything like this. Mm -hmm. I feel like sometimes when you're the peer reviewer, you feel like, oh my goodness, now I have to catch every single little mistake. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I also find that when people send me constructive criticism and some of it, even if it's like 2% of it is nice, like yeah. I really loved the sentence or this was yes. a great idea. Yes. It really just brightens my day. So great message, great yeah. message. Yeah.